Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to be with you this morning. We're going to be looking at um, Ephesians chapter 4 this morning, continuing on our journey through this letter of Paul to the church in Ephesus. And I'm going to read this passage to us this morning. So if you've got your Bibles with you, either your phones or your um, books, uh, let's open up to Ephesians chapter 4. And uh, we're reading from verse 1. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each of us, one of us, grace has been given as Christ appointed it. That is why it says when he ascended on high, he took captives and gave gifts to his people. What does it he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ gave himself, Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of whom he is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Heavenly Father, we pray as we open up your word this morning that you would reveal what you want to speak to us today. Thank you that your word is relevant to us today as it was when the Ephesians first read this letter to Paul. Speak to us, Father, we pray. Take my words and may you speak to us this morning. Father, as we're praying, I want to also just pray for our our state at the moment, uh, Victoria, Victoria, flooding in so many parts of our state and our city, lives that have been turned upside down by floodwaters, by damage, people without homes. Father, we pray that you would provide all that is required for people at this time. Courage, hope, um, hope in the midst of despair, Um, all the tasks that is before people as they seek to rebuild their lives. Uh, As waters continue to rise in parts of the state, please provide your protection and safety for those who are in danger. Uh, We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So for three chapters, Paul has been unfolding the, the eternal purposes of God for humanity, for history, through what Jesus Christ has done. The way he's reconciled alien people, us, to himself, brought us who are far far from God, near to God. He's broken down walls of hostility and animosity between people. 
made Jews and Gentiles into one humanity, this unique community called the church. And now Paul moves from what he's been talking about, what God has done for us, and begins to talk about, as a result of what God has done, who are we to be? What are we to do? He's moved from doctrine in the first part of the letter now to duty. From theology to, to practical implications for everyday life. And he introduces this shift in his thinking in verse 1 with, with these words. As a prisoner of the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. What does this mean? To live our lives worthy of the calling we've received. This new humanity that God has created, that God has called into existence, has two major characteristics. One, it's one people, Jews and Gentiles together, this new community, the single family of God. And the second part of that is that it's a holy people, almost like in the Old Testament where God called out the Israelites to be this holy, separate people from all the rest of the people, um, distinct from the world, set apart. We are this holy people called to belong to God. God has called us to be one people. Therefore, we must demonstrate unity. He's called us to be holy people. Therefore, we must demonstrate purity in our lives. Unity and purity are the two characteristics, fundamental um, features of the church which Paul urges us to maintain. To walk in unity, that's what we're looking at today as we look at this part of Ephesians 4. And then to walk in purity, that's the next half of this chapter and goes right through to the end of the, of the letter and we'll cover that over these next three weeks. So the church is made up of people who are widely diverse to each other is what it should be. It would be pretty boring if we were all exactly the same, wouldn't it? It would be a boring place to be if we all looked the same and sounded the same and thought the same. So let's think for a minute how diverse we are. Now there are a lot of different psychological tests that we could do today to see how different we are, the different ways that we think, the different ways that we react to pressure, the different ways in which we process information, the different ways that we work within a team. You may have done one of these in your workplace or if you've been a pioneer's mission, you go through lots of these before they tick the box to say that you can go. Um, Myers-Briggs, Enneagram, DISC, there's a whole range of them. But did you know that there is the Oreo personality test? Anyone heard of this? You know what an Oreo is? Chocolate biscuit with cream in the middle. There is an Oreo personality test and we're going to have a look at that this morning. On the screen, and I'm going to read these out because I know some can't see these, it's quite small. There are 10 um, ways in which you may eat an Oreo cookie. And depending on how you eat an Oreo cookie will depend what sort of person you are. Okay, so here they are. Remember the numbers, so I'm, going to make you, I'm not going to ask you to put your hands up or what. I don't think I will. Um, but just remember the numbers, okay? Number one, you eat the whole thing at once. Number two, one bite at a time. 
Number three, slow and methodical nibbles, examining each piece of the bite as you eat it. You're watching the biscuit all the time. Number four, and little fierce nibbles, no, like a rabbit. <laughs> Number five, dunked in some liquid, or we'll determine that as being either milk or coffee. Number six, twist it apart, you eat the inside, and then you eat the cookie. Or number seven, twist it apart, the inside, you eat that, then you throw the cookie away. (laughs) Number eight, just the cookie, not the inside. Number nine, I just lick it, I don't eat them. And then number ten, I don't have a favourite way because I don't like Oreos. Okay, think of which number you are on that list. One to ten. I wonder how many of you put I, or, or decided I eat the whole thing at once. This means, so that you know who you are, this means you consume life with abandon. You are fun to be with, exciting, carefree with just a hint of recklessness. You are totally irresponsible. No one should trust you with their children. <laughs> Number two, I eat it one bite at a time. Hands up those who did that one. I'll just ask that. Okay. You are lucky to be one of the 5.4 billion other people who eat their Oreos this way. Just like them, you lack information, uh, imagination and creativity, but that's okay because you're normal. <laughs> I eat in slow, methodical nibbles, examining the result of each bite as, as I go. You follow the rules. You're very tidy and orderly. You are meticulous in every detail with everything you do to the point of being anal retentive and irritating to others. <laughs> We're going to jump down the list, it'll take a while. Number eight, I eat just the cookie, not the inside. You enjoy pain. <laughs> if you want to know the rest of those, there's a, 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 paste, um, a, a paper in the... Um, beside the survey with all them listed down what the different things are so you can see what sort of person you are as you eat an Oreo cookie. You'll never be able to eat a cream-filled biscuit again without thinking someone's watching you to see what's this person like. Because we're all diverse. We're all different. Widely different in our views and in our opinions. How we think, how we react to other people. If we're going to live as God calls us to be, as a united community of people, it's going to take work to achieve. Look how Paul describes how this unity is achieved. Verse 2, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Humility means lowliness, lowliness of mind. It's restraining our sense of entitlement. Our sense of importance, submitting to others in order for them to be promoted, not our interests. In the church, for example, it's allowing someone else's cooking skills or someone else's musical abilities um, to be celebrated even more than yours, even if you're good at that. In the words of an often quoted um, paraphrase of C.S. Lewis's observation in Mere Christianity, Humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. I like that. 
Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Being gentle. Being gentle is not weak. It means dealing with other people with kindness rather than roughness, with compassion rather than force, with encouragement, coming alongside someone rather than bullying them into something that you want them to do or what they need to, how they need to change. Being patient. The Greek for being patient here is slow to anger. It means long-suffering. Some of your translations may actually have that uh, in the gifts of the Spirit. Putting up with the faults of others. Holding your tongue when you see immaturity happening in, in, in someone's actions or the fact that they don't do the things the way that you think they should be done. Holding that back. And Paul says doing all of this while bearing each other, by being tolerant with each other and doing it all in love. John Stott describes these as the five foundational stones of Christian unity. Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing one another and love. And when the strong base has been laid, Stott says, there's a good hope that unity can be built. Now, for that to happen, that's not going to happen naturally. This is something that requires the spiritual. The spiritual. It's the product of the Holy Spirit working in individuals' lives. When they say, I want to come into God's submission, I want to be obedient to God and prepared to live the way that he wants me to live. We can't just say, well, the Holy Spirit's got to do this because I can't do it. Yeah, that's true. The Holy Spirit can do that, but it takes work on our part as well. That's why Paul says we've got to work at it. He says in verse 3, make every effort, not just, well, let's think about it, but make every effort, he says, to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. We have to work at it. We have to maintain it. What a challenge. What a challenge for all of us. Then Paul goes on after saying, this is what we are to be doing. He says, it goes into the, the basis, the, the origin of what this unity is in verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, many New Testament scholars believe this may have been a hymn that the New Testament sang um, as they celebrated God. What it, almost like that uh, I Believe song that we sang before, the statement of faith. Um, this is what they sang in the early church. They may have done that. But it certainly, um, we see in, in this verse how, how unity is rooted and based in the Trinity, the Godhead. Paul talks about the Spirit, verse 4. In Jesus, the Lord, Jesus, the Son, verse 5, God the Father, in verse 6. It's a picture here of, of the complete unity of God. God is one, but it exists in three persons. Keep that picture in mind as, we, as, a, as it is um, a critical to our, our thinking of what this um, unity is all about. 
Notice what the Spirit has done, verse 4. There is one body and one Spirit, Paul says. The one body is the church, the body of Jesus Christ. Jews and Gentiles together in this, this new humanity. The Holy Spirit indwells it and empowers this body and gives it life. He indwells every believer that makes up that body of Christ. He brings them all together. As Paul says to the Corinthians, for we were all baptised by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slaves or free. And then we have the work of the Lord Jesus, verse 4, just as you were called to one hope when you were called one Lord, one faith, one baptism. I like how Kent Hughes um, explains these verses. He says, as our one Lord Jesus creates one faith because he is the object and focus of our belief. Because of our one faith, we're all participated in one baptism, sharing one Lord and one faith. And one baptism brings one hope. The hope we have that Jesus is going to return, hope we have that our inheritance is in in eternity in God's presence. And lastly, there's the work of God the Father, verse 6. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Here are two British girls. Kian is on the left and um, Remy is on the right. They were born one minute apart in 2005. They look totally different, don't they? One is dark-skinned with black hair, one is fair-skinned with blonde hair. These girls are twins, conceived naturally to the same parents. They may look completely different, but they're sisters. They share the same mother and the same father. They're family. So it is with us as brothers and sisters in Christ. We have the same father. We're in the same family. Now, unity comes from seven great unities, seven great ones grounded in this trinity, this this Godhead of Father, Son and Holy Spirit. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. So what's the implications of this unity in the Trinity? Let's um, just go through that again and summarise it, the, the, the persons of the Trinity, the way that we normally speak of the Trinity, the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Paul moved them back the other way in his letter. Let's go back to Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And we see here, one Father creates the one family. One Lord Jesus, one Son creates one faith, one hope, one baptism. One spirit creates one body. And so we can take from this that there can only be one Christian family, only one Christian faith, one Christian hope, one Christian baptism, only one Christian body, because there's only one God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Is there only one Father? Well, then he only has one family. There's only one God. He only has one church. And we're it. One 
people together. And it's our task to maintain the unity of the Spirit, Paul says, and the bond of peace. And to make every effort to work hard to make sure that unity is, is um, kept. Then we come to verse 7. Notice what verse 7 begins with. A little word. The word, but. It's critical when you're um, studying the Bible to notice this word, but. It's only small, but it's so significant. Because what it does is that you know when you see but, that it's going to take something that's just been stated and then present something a little bit contrary to what's just been stated. I like vegetables, but I don't like broccoli. I do, actually. <laughs> I couldn't quickly come up with something that I didn't like that's vegetable. Um, no, I like Brussels sprouts, too. <laughs> so Paul's been talking here about Christian unity. We're one body, one faith, one family. But unity shouldn't be interpreted as uniformity. We're not to imagine every Christian comes out of some conveyor belt or some machine that looks exactly the same. There should be a slide that shows that. Um, We're not all the same, as we've discovered with our friends, the Oreo cookies. The unity of the church um, is far from boring and monotonous. Our different cultures, our different personalities, the way we eat Oreos, it's because of what Paul is about to describe here in verse 11. This incredible diversity within the unity that Paul says we need to strive for. This is how he puts it in verse 7. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ appointed it. That is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. Now Paul here is borrowing, borrowing a line from Psalm 68, verse 18. In that psalm, in verse 7 of that psalm, um, the, God is pictured as this triumphant warrior, um, marching in triumph before all of Israel immediately after the Exodus. And, and Israel, with God the head, makes their way um, to Mount Sinai and, and the earth shakes, the psalm says, and, and kings run in terror because of what they see God doing among his people. And in verse 16 and 17 of this psalm, God is on Mount Sinai, sets his sights on Mount Zion in Jerusalem and moves his army to Jerusalem in victory, leading those he's captured along the way, those he's captured in battle or in this position, moving towards um, Jerusalem and receiving, note, receiving gifts from people as God moves towards Israel. Paul takes this verse and applies it to the, um, the Christians in Ephesus. But he changes receiving gifts to giving gifts. In the triumphant Christ, he said, gave gifts to people. So he borrows this imagery of Psalm 68, applies it to Christ's incarnation, his descent from heaven into the lowly parts of earth, Paul describes in verse 8. Ascends back up to heaven 
after his death and resurrection and there, seated at the right hand of God his Father, Paul says the triumphant, the victorious Christ gives gifts to his people, abundant gifts to his church. And here we have the diversity um, that, is, that um, we have in unity. Um, Paul writing to the Corinthians um, says there are many different types of gifts uh, in, in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians 1. There, in 1 Corinthians, he lists nine gifts. Here in Ephesians, he just lists, lists five. He's not worried about here what the actual gifts are. He's just saying there's an incredible diversity in the gifts that God, through Jesus, has given to the church. And so he says in, verse 12, uh, in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, there are many different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in every one, it is the same God at work. Notice the two words that keep cropping up in in those verses. What are they? Different and same. Different and same. Different and same. What's that? That's diversity. That's differences. Different kinds of gifts, but it's all one spirit who gives them. There are different gifts because there are different ways of doing ministry. But they all come from the one spirit. They all come from the one Lord. They're all done in the name of honouring the same God, the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. So Paul's saying that in the church there must be unity But within that unity, God has carefully crafted all kinds of diversity, different gifts, different ministries, different ways of doing things. And as a result, there's all kinds of opportunities for things to go wrong. Wouldn't it be so much easier if there was one gift, one ministry, we all did the same thing? We get on so well together. But that wouldn't be the way God is himself, diverse in unity. It's not the way he designs the church to be either. The church must reflect God's unity in diversity, diversity in unity. A bunch of people singing a song in unison sounds beautiful, doesn't it? All together. But when that same group starts singing in harmony, doesn't it just change the whole experience of what you hear. God wants us, his church, to be singing from the same hymn book. That's not going to work for a lot of people here. A hymn book is a book we open up to read and sing songs from. He, um, he wants us all to be singing from the same screen. <laughs> but not singing in unison. He wants us singing in harmony. I'm not talking about how we sing, I'm talking about us living in harmony. He's committed to a church that has all kinds of gifts, all kinds of ministries, all kinds of doing things, different ways, living together, serving ministries together, ministering together in harmony. So what's the outcome? What's the expectation that God has for us living and serving in unity within the the diversity of the gifts that he's given the church. Paul sets out two purposes. One is immediate, 
The other is going to take a bit of time, but it's the ultimate. First, God's immediate purpose. Verse 12, his purpose is to equip his people for works of service. One of the, the great truths that came out of the Reformation is what we commonly call the priesthood of all believers. And in the early days of Baptist, Church of Christ, Brethren, that was, that's the big thing. Other churches have copied and picked that up as they've grown and, and, and understood that clearer. But some churches still follow this traditional model. And my apologies to any Anglicans um, watching or here. I just wanted an image of a priest. Um, John Stop, Stop describes this as the pastor perched precariously on top of the pyramid while the laity are set out underneath in serried ranks of inferiority. That's what church was like before the Reformation. The biblical model of church is also not much better when it's described as a bus. Um, Stott says, the model of a bus in which the pastor does all the driving while the congregation are the passengers slumbering in peaceful security. I don't think this is a bus here. <laughs> Certainly not a pyramid. Pardon? Uh, yeah, I don't have a, a big um, high, whatever those big licenses are, so I can't do that. What, what God's intention for the church is, is it's a body of Christ, in which every member has a part to play. Every member has a function. Unity, the body, and diversity, each member having a different part, different action, different function. I may have the term of interim lead pastor here and have some leadership role, but I don't see myself as the pastor. I don't see myself at a different level to Sean and Kath, we're equals in that role. Nor do I see myself on top of a pyramid telling everyone what to do, how to live their lives. I'm certainly not driving a bus. We all have our part to do in building out the body of Christ. All our parts are important. God has equipped each of us with different gifts. Every believer ministers. Every believer serves. We all have a part to play. The second expectation of unity, this unity that's in diversity, is found in the second half of verse 12 where Paul says, so that this is, he's already said the first um, purpose, the first expectation is that we will be equipped to serve and work, uh, equipped in works of service. The second part of that is so that the body of Christ will be built up until we reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Paul says that God, that God has given us gifts, gifts that are diverse in nature, to equip us and, and to, 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 um, in our ministries to grow us and, and to build up the body of Christ. And it will be a lengthy process, he's, he's inferring here, um, you know, until we reach unity in the faith, the knowledge of Jesus Christ, and then we'll become mature, and then we will attain the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So what will result in us living in unity, 
ministering in our gifts, serving in the gifts that God has given us, in that diversity. In a word, it's maturity. Growing spiritually, growing in our faith, growing in our knowledge and our understanding of God's word and not remaining like a child. If you watch little children, they dart around from one thing to the other. Get to find a game, they'll toy, they'll start playing with it, and suddenly something distracts them, they're off again, something else, they'll stay with that until something else comes along that looks a bit better, then they'll be off again. They're dynamos. Paul describes them as being like boats in a stormy sea, tossed this way and that way by winds and waves. And that's like immature Christians he's inferring here. Unstable, fickle, easily influenced by the latest book or the most popular pastor that's around at the moment or some fad that's come up. Oh, this is a way to go. Vulnerable to every cunning and crafty, deceitful person that wants to, to, to pull them away. But those who are mature are steady and focused, growing in our understanding of spiritual truths, growing in our whole character of Jesus, speaking the truth in love, as Paul describes in verse 15, that we may grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head. So here then is Paul's vision for the church. He starts this chapter with this exhortation. Live a life worthy of your calling. Worthy to the life God has called you to be. And the verses that follow, he's showing us what that looks like. It's a picture. A picture of developing French fellowship. An eager an eagerness, a willingness to maintain unity together. Every member active in ministry and a steady growth towards maturity in Christ. Holding everything together in love. So how are you going in maintaining fellowship? How are you going in maintaining unity in this part of the church? Is there an attitude or is there a behaviour that you know disrupts that, divides that, that needs to be dealt with? Are you active in ministry? Are you allowing God to use you to build up those around you, to build up this church and the people that make up this church through your, your gifts? Are you growing in your faith? Are you growing towards maturity in Christ? These are big things. These are challenges for each one of us. We need to keep this biblical model of what it means to be the church clearly before us. Only when we're living that way we'll be living lives worthy of the calling that God has given us to be part of his family to be part of his church, to be part of this body. Join with me as we pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your church. Thank you for bringing us to, your, bringing us to you reconciled and um, joined together as, as one people 
as members of your family through our Saviour Jesus Christ. Father, help us to be the church you desire, the church universal, but also the church here in Roval. We fail so often. We, we, we bicker, we quarrel, we get upset when things don't go our way. We feel put out by others. Lord, make us one. Draw us closer together in fellowship, closer together in unity. Grow us towards this maturity. Build us up. May we take the time to, to think seriously about what it really means to live lives worthy of the calling we have received, which is to be the body of Christ, indwelt by the Spirit, empowered by your grace, committed to your tasks, sold out to your purposes. May we, through your grace, be what you want us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.